This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Ariel Schaefitz speaks with Sophie Bacalar, partner at the Collaborative Fund. So my first question for you is simply, what does a day in your role look like? And how do you think that differs from another partner at a more typical fund that doesn't sit at the intersection of for-profit and for-good like Collaborative Fund does? Yeah, it's a great question. A little hard to answer because um, this this job, this career is is pretty um, unpredictable. Every day looks a little bit different. But I do think of my my role as a as a partner um, as straddling sort of five pillars. So the first is obviously investing. That's a really really critical piece of what I do and has been since I first got into venture. Um, but the amount of time I spend, you know, taking pitch meetings and um, listening to founders talk about their companies is actually a lot less of a of my day to day than it was when I first started as more of a junior investor. Um, fortunately, we have a really great uh, investment team that that sort of takes on the bulk of that um, responsibility on like a day to day basis. But it's still certainly part of my my job. I do um, take sort of final pitches from companies after they've made it through a few hoops um, and work with the the junior investment team on um, uh, thinking through diligence and and evaluating opportunities. So that's the first part. I'd say maybe that's 30 to 40% of my day. Um, I I generally think about my um, work in terms of weeks instead of days because they're so, so up and down and they change so dramatically. Um, the second is the second pillar would be management. So again, working with those um, uh, newer investment professionals on sourcing and diligence, and um, again working with their with their founders um, and thinking through investment opportunities. The third is governance. Um, so that's sitting on boards and working with our portfolio companies to you know, help them make their companies succeed. Um, And as you become a little bit more senior in venture, that tends to take up more and more of your time. And so that's where I, I just tend to spend quite a lot of my, my time and energy. And that's fortunate because that's one of the things I love doing the most um, and and gets me most excited. Um, The fourth is uh, fundraising ourselves, right? It's, it's, uh, both fundraising from potential investors, um, which we call limited partners, and also uh, working with them and keeping them updated on what we're doing and writing quarterly letters and investor updates and doing calls with them to just make sure they understand what we're what we're up to um, with their money. <laughs> and then the fifth is actually, I think, the thing that is probably most unique about my fund specifically, which is called Collab SOS. It's a um, our newest fund at Collaborative. It's a climate-focused fund, um, slightly later stage um, focus on series A and B. And one of the things that's unique about the way that we've structured this fund is that we've been very intentional about um, the LP base that we've built, but also our partners. Um, so we've we've 
created some very strategic partnerships and alliances that um, add a lot of value to our portfolio companies and help us with everything from sourcing unique deals to um, creating real customer introductions for our, for our portfolio companies. Um, and so that I think is is something not as many other investors spend quite so much time on, but where we think there's just a tremendous amount of, of value because um, yeah, one of the things that we notice in climate is that it's it's so critical for companies to be able to make the transition out of the lab and sort of into the mainstream, into the commercial realm. And that can be really challenging for a lot of climate companies. So um, being able to help facilitate that by structuring these interesting partnerships um, is really important. And, and that's why it, it sort of takes up a disproportionate amount of my time. That's super interesting. And I'd love to dive more into the, the governance pillar that you mentioned where you're sitting on boards, you're um, practicing sourcing diligence. Um, and because that seems like you're taking more of a hands-on role than I would think a typical investor or venture fund would. Could you talk a bit more about the the hands-on role that you have in, in terms of choosing the companies that you're going to invest in and what you look for in these companies? So for example, different KPIs that you're looking for in terms of maturity or environmental impact, pre-seed, early stage that you mentioned, locality, region, any, any of those sort of KPIs that you look for? Yeah, so out of uh, um, out of the this fund specifically, Clab SOS, our climate fund, that's slightly later stage, so Series A and B. Um, we do have a seed fund. We actually also have a very early stage catalytic fund, which is called Shared Future, that invests 100k into 100 companies per year. It's um, just very, very broad climate focus, very early stage. So. My point is we we do actually have um, the opportunity to invest across the capital stack. Um, but within climate, our primary focus is really series A and B because that's where the largest fund and the largest amount of dollars are going. Um, when we're looking at series A and B companies and climate specifically, um, it can be really, really challenging to create quantitative, um, clear KPIs for companies because so many of these, these companies are working on very long time horizons. They're working on extremely complicated, challenging, maybe the most challenging problems um, in the world, right? They're extremely capital intensive and um, just take a very long time. So uh, by the time they get to the series A and B, being able to define really clearly, what have you achieved? What do you need to achieve with the capital that you're raising? Um, what does success look like? That is a, a an existential question and, and problem to some extent for investors at the stage that we're focused on. Um, I would say that Collaborative has a particular focus on ensuring that companies that we invest in have the potential to scale, that they have the potential to really achieve commercial success. And again, we sort of can can cheat the outcome a little bit or influence the outcome a little bit because we have these strategic partners and LPs who we can introduce them to as potential customers. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not easy. I'll, I'll say that it's not always easy to say, 
um, okay, what it, you know, outside of climate series A and B, it, it can be very clear what the KPIs would be. They are revenue um, oriented or they're benchmarked to, you know, um, margin or EBITDA or they, they're, they're quite tangible. But in climate, sometimes companies get to series A and B and they're not even generating revenue yet because they're still, they're still um, technical or scale up questions that they need to solve for. Um, so all that to say, it, it, it's, it, is a, it is a hard thing to quantify. It's something that we spend a lot of time thinking through and working with our portfolio companies on trying to set very clear um, benchmarks and KPIs for their future rounds. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a hard one. <laughs> um, along the lines of the, the KPI question that I was asking, which I know is hard, to quantify, are there metrics that you use to see or measure the, the progress of the companies that you do invest in or, or quantify qualitatively or quantitatively their positive impact environmentally or financially? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, um, again, think a lot about how to quantify their potential for scale up. So if we were going to really simplify the way different investors think about risk at different stages, you might say, you know, pre-seed investors are taking technical risk and seed investors are taking scale-up risk, Series A investors are taking some commercial risk and so on and so on. So what you really want to be able to prove between, let's say, the seed in Series A round in, in climate is that you've de-risked the technology, that it works, and that there's evidence that you can scale it up into a, a, a you know, a culturally impactful, hopefully global business that that really um, again has has massive scale. Um, and so, how do we think about that if a company isn't generating revenue yet? That's that's quite hard. I mean, typically where we would like to invest is when a company is generating at least a small amount of revenue, which proves that there is, you know, customer appetite, that there is um, a market for them, which might be, you know, 500K to a million dollars of revenue, maybe even less, maybe a little bit more. And then we can come in and make customer introductions through those partners and LPs that I mentioned, and then hopefully help them accelerate that scale up pretty significantly. Um, the space where we're most focused on is what we call new materials and supply chains. And so there are, you know, tangible products that in theory should be generating revenue, you know, in a, in a reasonable time frame. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there are a lot of technical hurdles to jump through before you can, you can actually create a product and sell it to a customer, um, particularly when you're completely reimagining new materials and completely redesigning supply chains, you know, that, that, that takes time. So um, having some either small revenue or proof that revenue is going to be coming in the door eminently, which might be, you know, purchase orders or, or uh, pre-orders pre from customers or contracts that are very, um, well-defined. Those are, those are the kinds of things that we're looking for to prove that there's commercial appetite. Right. And then, so you mentioned the, the financial aspect, given that you're at the intersection of for-profit and for good, are there environmental or social elements that you hope that these companies will achieve environmental or social impacts rather 
that you hope that they will achieve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of our first filter. When I think about mm. what is the first, you know, test to get through the door, even what's the first um, uh, uh, benchmark that we're going to be using before we even look at a company, before we even meet with them, it's are they pushing the world forward? Are they doing good in the world? That's the very first question that we ask. So everything that we actually spend time on should pass that um, that sniff test. And then we can start thinking about, okay, can they scale? Can they pass what we call the villain test, which is our framework for ensuring that companies aren't just sort of feel good, do good projects, but also have the ability to, to scale, um, you know, and, and have that impact on sort of a global level. Um, in terms of very specific KPIs though, you know, we're fairly intentional, but about not setting quantitative KPIs around things like ESG targets, partly because even though we're series A and B, which is a little bit later stage, we're still investing so early. Um, a lot of these companies would be disqualified from passing those tests because you know, they're, they're projecting forward their impact. It's, it's, you know, we don't want to disqualify companies who aren't achieving those KPIs just yet um, because they might be on a 10, 15, even 20 year timescale. Um, and those are the types of companies that we want to back that are really going after the biggest challenges and um, taking the biggest swings. Um, and so they might not hit those targets right away. Um, so we have to kind of have a long-term vision for, for what, environmental and social impact looks like. Right. That makes sense. I was just thinking because you are investing in such early stage companies, you probably aren't looking at, or they probably don't even have ESG rating and rankings or, or do they? Some of them do. Yeah. Some, some of, of them, them do. do. Um, but we, we just don't use it as a disqualifier if they don't. Got it. So you do use some ratings and rankings, but you aren't using them as the end-all be-all of your assessment of the company? No, again, we, we don't. We're very intentional about not using them. Now, some companies will, will track their ESG targets for themselves or for other investors, but we're very intentional about not doing that because we think it can disqualify the real big world-changing um, companies who, again, are on a longer time scale and don't necessarily have... Um, you know, aren't necessarily going to be able to meet those targets in the short term. Understood. That makes, that makes sense. I would love to switch to a different topic. Um, our MBA program has a few classes called Sustaining Mission and Becoming a Sustainable Organization, where we focus on not just how to run a, su a successful company, but how to be a good leader and preserve a company for the long haul. So with that background, um, in addition to the, the metrics that we've discussed, I'm wondering how you consider a company's leadership, its C-suite culture, its employees when deciding if you want to invest in them or if you do at all. Yeah, it's such a great question because um, we're when we're investing, we're not really at the stage where there's a lot to evaluate in terms of leadership and team, right? Sometimes we're investing when there's one or two people, uh, often there are fewer than 10 um, on the team. This is so important why investors can be such a critical piece of the puzzle for building, you know, sustainable and, um, 
and uh, you know ethical companies because we have a lot of experience across sectors. We've seen all these different iterations of teams, of organizations, and we can be part of the conversation as a company is scaling and adding to their team how to do that in a way that is responsible and is you know intentional. So um, it's not, I, I couldn't give you a very particular framework for evaluating teams other than we spend a lot of time with them and really try to ensure not just that the management and executive team is um, strong and and has a good you know uh, top-down culture, but that the whole broad team um, really sort of fits our our idea of what um, you know a good sustainable business looks like. But beyond that, we are also we we have a hand in helping scale that, right? We have a hand in in shaping that, um, and I think it's one of the ways that founders and um, startups can really leverage their investors because we have so much experience in hiring and building teams and thinking about culture and 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 um, building that within an organization. So, yeah, I, I hope that's something that we can be helpful helpful with. Yeah, I, I guess I should have started this with this question, but you mentioned a good sustainable business. So what does a good sustainable business look like for you? Oh, gosh, I think we're going to have to narrow it down a little bit from there. Um, it depends so much on the sector and and problem that they're solving and type of team. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a little hard to to paint too broad of a stroke. Um but I think, you know, again, using our framework, this inter looking at the intersection of for profit and for good, our our framework is sort of to to think about companies that are again pushing the world forward, doing good in the world as the very first filter, as the first test for getting in the door, and then to narrow that down based on okay, can they do good in the world at scale? Because what we want to avoid is um, companies that are are trying to do good in the world, trying to push the world forward, but don't have the ability to go beyond their own sort of um, insular tight circle. And so I think coupling those two things, right, doing good in the world and being able to scale and, you know, uh, by extension, generate economic returns for your employees and your founders and your investors and um, create sort of a global impact. I think that is, is, um, a sustainable business because it also, in addition to doing good and creating sustainable practices, it's a sustainable business model. Thinking about generating economic returns creates a flywheel that then extends the ability to do good in the world even longer. Um, so it it's it, it can feel kind of icky to talk about returns or economics when you're talking about doing good in the world. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people don't. But actually, it's it is the most sustainable way of building businesses, right? It's it's the most sustainable, um, and obviously, I'm I'm being a bit tongue in cheek because we're using sustainable in two different, you know, using two different definitions for sustainable. But I do think that's important because um, if you create a business practice that only helps the environment or helps people, helps the world for a very short time period. You know, that's that's certainly a lot less exciting to me than building a long term sustainable business model. I think that was an amazing definition. That was great. And on in the same vein of the I guess the original definition of sustainability, which is you no know, longevity 
and having a future, which which I I believe is what we were both are thinking about in, in terms of the initial definition of sustainability. I'd love to talk about your thoughts on public versus private companies or if you have a hope for the companies that you invest in to IPO. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I'd love to see all of these companies um, have the same kind of uh, breadth and impact. Um, and by impact, I mean, just sort of uh, influence on on culture and the way that culture and our um, our economic systems are structured. I'd, I'd love to see them be a bigger part of that story, right? I mean, I think we're at such an exciting um, unique inflection point in history, right? Where a lot of the legacy companies that we think of as being the big global brands that shape the way that we live, they have, you know, there are up and comers that have the potential to supplant those. And that makes me very excited to think of a, you know, global financial system that's comprised of companies that are being thoughtful about the way that they build their leadership teams and the way that they build their um, business models. That's super, super exciting to me. That's one of the reasons I do this job. Do you think that there's a risk of the for good element of the, these companies sort of detaching from them when they do join the public markets? Yeah, it can, it can be um, a tough a tough structure, right? Public markets can be a bit uh, antithetical to long-term thinking, right? They're mm-hmm. they're structured to be very short-term. I hope that that I hope that there are systemic changes to the way that our financial systems are comprised that that sort of address those. That's a longer conversation, unfortunately, but yeah, um, it's it's one of the reasons why thinking about building a sustainable and ethical culture from the very beginning is really important because there are very good companies that are public companies. And I think we don't have as many models for that as, as we'd like, unfortunately, but I think this new wave, this new crop of, uh, of companies that are spinning up now and, and hopefully will be um, entering the public markets in the next decade or two, I think they're going to be built differently. And, and part of that is is consumers, right? It's, it's the end, it's the individual, it's the consumer, it's the customer who is putting pressure on companies to behave differently and holding them to a higher standard. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, again, there are tensions there that are a little hard to deny and hard to ignore, but it's not impossible. And I'm, I'm excited to see what can happen when, uh, companies that are economically driven and driven by their, ability to do good in the world when they enter the public markets in the public sphere. Yeah, I'm excited to see that future too. So we don't have a ton of time left. So I guess I just wanted to end with a question that I know I'm super interested in and my fellow Bardians are as well. As you may know, as we've discussed and, and being in the space, the sustainability space is booming. Do you have any advice for an MBA student like me or someone simply interested in pursuing sustainability, corporate sustainability, sustainable finance 
in today's socio-political climate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like I have to make a plug because we just announced yesterday that we're launching a, a two-year associate program. So anyone who's interested in, in applying, you should check that out. Um, it's, I think, a really, really great way to get an introduction to sustainability and investing. And um, yeah, would, would, would love to see your application. So go to our website and, and check that out. Well, thank you so, so much. This has been really, really exciting for me specifically as someone who has only taken one or two finance classes um, in my business career. But I, I really feel like the way that you describe sustainable finance is really tangible and, and, and digestible for anyone. So I'm excited for everyone to hear this. And thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, anytime. This was super fun. So thank you so much. We appreciate our Loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot on Instagram and tag Impact Report Podcast. Learn more about the Collaborative Fund and the other topics discussed in today's episode by visiting collabfund.com. And you can follow Sophie on LinkedIn and Twitter. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, May 12th. We'll be speaking with Hannah Olson of Disclo. Interested in learning how you can launch a high-impact, purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, circular economy, and more about how they launch their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industries. Visit gps.bard.edu resources today.